This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the science writer Gaia Vince about her new book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. It's a marvelous book, Gaia. Marvelous in the true sense of the word. 300 pages that come bearing the gifts of wonder and surprise. Humanity you find evolving into a superorganism, transcending its biological capabilities to become godlike in its powers to shape the earth and declare itself immortal. It's an uplifting message, and maybe you can begin with your notion of the developing bath that is the human evolutionary triad. This evolutionary triad, that's really at the very heart of what I would call the the remarkable difference between humans and all other life forms. Because our evolution has, has taken us away from the trajectory of, of every other sort of life form. Somehow we became extraordinary Somehow we have managed to, as you said, be, be marvelous, be, be remarkable, be magnificent in a way. You know, we now are the dominant creatures on this planet. We dominate all of Earth. We dominate our planet. And we did that because of this evolutionary triad. And the triad is our um, evolution of our biology, our environment, and our culture. And these three elements all interweave and um, they, they work in these rich feedback loops over deep millennia. And that has what has bootstrapped uh, this weak ape, this pathetic creature into this unlikely success story. And it goes way back. It goes before Homo sapiens. It goes back to, to uh, before Homo erectus, this, this beginning. And it, and it really starts where culture begins to take over. How many years ago are we talking about when culture begins to take over? This is debatable when it, when it first started to take over. But I would say, I would say that uh, Homo erectus was already driven largely by culture. So Homo erectus was an extraordinary creature. He was not, she was not defined by her ge- geography, defined by a, an ecological niche like uh, chimpanzees, say, and, and like our other hominid an- ancestors. Homo erectus really traveled far. Homo erectus had fire. So I think that um, Homo erectus was already starting to, starting to be driven by culture. But there was something that happened later, later, later on in time and in, in, our, um, in our human ancestry, which really took it on. And, and what happened was we, we developed a new type of culture. We developed a cumulative cultural evolution. So, so our culture is inherited. Um, it's passed down between each other and um, over generations and it's selected for and it evolves and that's really that's really made us very different it means that not only uh, does does our biology evolve but also our culture so that's what you mean by i mean you divide it into four parts fire word beauty time so 
start with fire and then move to word and 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 then try to give me some sense of 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 years i mean a hundred thousand years twenty five thousand years i mean when is hopio homo sapiens developing uh, fire and and language well, I would say that uh, when, when Homo sapiens evolved, which is um, more than 200,000 years ago, perhaps even as far back as 300,000 years. And, and this, is, this is not uh, one point. There wasn't um, a, an Eve and an Adam and um, that they were human. This was, a, this was a slow process. And it was, um, if you th- instead, of, instead of thinking of that, that evolutionary tree or, that, or even the... Um, the sort of the ascendance of man, you know, the, the sort of uh, parade of all these different uh, ancestors that eventually become human. It's, it's more accurate to sort of think of us as um, eddies and meandering rivers, perhaps, of, of different, different attempts at hum- uh, being a human. So all our sort of cousin species, which we we're all interbreeding with until we had something that was recognizably homo sapiens. And um, we had language at this point. We had all these things. We were not so very different from what we are now. The only difference is time has passed. And so it takes time to become more sophisticated, to have more sophisticated tools, to have more sophisticated societies and behaviors and so on. But really, what, what made us what made humans so successful is not is not this um, the fact that just our brains were big that we're individually clever, but it's really it's really our collective culture. It's it's the fact that we are very cooperative, and so we can rely on that. And underpinning all of this is is our secret trick, which is which is that we control energy better than any other life form. So. Really, all of life, every creature, every plant is restricted. It's limited by how much energy it can harness. And if you think about plants, well, they just um, get the sun's energy using photosynthesis, and it's quite a slow, um, inefficient way. So you don't get plants uh, racing across the Serengeti attacking wildebeest. What we have managed to do is control energy better than any other type. And, and we did this in various ways. Well, fire is it would be is your first uh, section, right? So that's one kind of energy. Exactly. So, so fire was a really, I mean, it it was it was it was a paradigm shifting. Once we controlled fire, this this completely changed us because fire means fire. Fire is, of course, energy, but but fire means that we don't have to expend our energy to protect ourselves. We don't have to expend energy to heat ourselves, and we don't have to expend our biological energy to to digest our food. And this is a big game changer because it meant once you cook food, you have a much more efficient uh, way of getting hold of calories, proteins, and all the nutrients involved in your meat or your root vegetables. And so once we were able to cook, it meant there was more 
uh, nutrients and more energy. There was more energy available for our brains. So our brains, our evolution then responded. And this is a bit really what I mean by our evolutionary triad. So we developed we developed fire harnessing. So uh, fire starting, gathering um, gathering fuel, managing to start the fire, managing to keep it going managing to pass on how to light fires to each other. We developed all that culturally, but our evolution responded. Okay, so our brains then grew bigger, but we also changed the environment because we burnt the landscape. And this change in the environment then, then changed our culture because once we were burning the landscape, it meant that, the, that hunting was much easier. So we became savannah hunters. So these three elements, and I think this is something that I'm, I'm really keen to sort of emphasize about, about our evolution, that, that, that the environment has been also what made us, as well as our biology and as well as our culture. So these three coming together and feeding back on each other, really in this, um, in this loop that, that, that propelled our evolution forward. You know, once we were gathering um, and relying on each other to make fire, um, and produce these bigger brains, we, uh, we were then uh, able to cooperate and we had, we had more people to then share our cultural knowledge, our tools, um, more people to help hunt, um, more people to uh, share the resources around, but um, there's an there's a efficiency of scale with that. So, so, so basically, we became more cooperative. That then drove our our need to um, our brain growth, and then as our brains grew bigger, it meant that we could we could um, host more ideas and more culture in our brains, and sharing those among us, among our group, meant that we we got another energy efficiency. Many of our talents and attitudes, culturally as as well as genetically, are are we get from our parents. I mean, it, it comes down to us over time through the generations, right? It does, it does. So this makes us again very different from, from the other creatures. So, so if, we, if we look at humans, we're quite strange. We are not restricted to our evolutionary niche. We're not found only in one area. We have expanded across the globe. And yet, we are biologically almost exactly the same. We haven't adapted to any of these different environments biologically. In fact, there is more difference genetically between two chimpanzees either side of the Congo River than there is between two humans from different continents. So genetically, we are almost exactly the same. There are differences that we can see and there are differences that exist, but they are very, very minor. And they are, they, they're mere sort of quirks, really. But what we have done is we've diversified culturally. So we are kind of culturally speciating rather than, rather than uh, biologically or genetically speciating. But culture can change really quickly. So if you think about the culture that we've inherited, what, what it means is, because our culture is so plastic, there is no natural way of being a human there is no natural way of of behaving or or doing things we do everything by learning it from our culture and we grow up 
within this cultural developing bath. That's what I call it. This, this, um, I'm, I'm sort of comparing it to uh, the only the perhaps your older listeners will know what I'm talking about. But when a when a photograph used to be developed before digital photography, you would put it in a chemical bath, and and how long you put it in there for, and um, the exact ingredients and conditions of that bath would determine how that photograph came out. And it's very similar for us. We the particular cultural developing bath of our locality, of our, of our social norms, make us different and, and it even affects our life chances. They, they teach us how we should perceive things from everything to do with uh, what colours we see to uh, whether we think uh, women and, and men should have equal, equal roles in society. So many different things. Even um, how we perceive um, an accident happening, whether we think, whether we uh, assign blame or not. And, and, and this, this gives us, this enormous cultural variation gives us as a species our resilience, our strength, because it means that there are so many different ways of doing things that if we experience um, uh, an environmental shock or um, uh, a drought or something like that, there are ways of coming. There are ways of uh, getting through it within our societies. We will have different ways of of dealing with this that have evolved in that particular society. So the problem is that we, when we see when we see our cultural developing bath, we don't realise that what we have, what we have inherited culturally, is is literally just that. These are just different ways of perceiving the world and of being and it's not a natural it's not something that's inherently human so so then we judge people by this we 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 look at others and think and see that they are doing things differently and we assign a value to that and say they are doing it wrong and we are doing it right and so within that we can we can uh inherit prejudices that give people very different life chances um, and, and we make our societies unequal because of that. So um, although it's our strength, it's also it's also our Achilles heel. Well, I mean, for example, gender is an invention, right? It, it, indeed, indeed. Explain, explain that. Explain it, it's not sex. It's not biological. It's it's the invention of a uh, cultural attitude, right? We do. We invent, we invent our human world and we invent the way that we see our human world. And we do this in extraordinarily different ways. And, and it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it affects our biology. It affects the way that our bodies and our minds work, this cultural evolution. So language is a fantastic example of this. So language is entirely cultural. We learn it. You know, you're not born knowing language. We have to learn it from each other. And it, it really affects our cultural developing bar. So as so languages themselves evolve. So that's the other. This is, it's very meta, actually, this whole thing, because our cultures themselves evolve as well as our as well as our um, each, each individual culture evolves. So, so if we think about language, um, most cultures, all cultures name language name name sorry all cultures distinguish colors but they start with naming black and white 
Um, and then they move on to having names for red and then green. And a lot of languages don't get on to having a word for the colour blue. The ancient Greeks didn't have the, the word for blue, did they? Well, that's what we think, yeah. We think that the ancient Greeks didn't have a word for blue. And um, the, more, the, more, um, the more complex a culture is in terms of the more um, products it has, the more industrialized, especially um, uh, manufactured products, um, the less able you are to distinguish between two identical things except by color. And so that's one of the reasons that um, industrial societies have a lot more words for color. They just needed them more. With the natural systems, quite often you can use another descriptor other than color to distinguish between um, things. Anyway, so if you take the Himba people of Namibia, they don't have a word for the color blue. And that means that the speakers of that language don't perceive blue in the same way as people who have the word blue in their language, say English speakers who have the word blue. So they find it harder to distinguish in a color chart between things that are incredibly obvious to us, where the blue is, is very obviously um, uh, next to a green chart. But it's the combination of the triad, the genetics, I mean, the biology, the culture, and the environment, because agriculture also changes our environment. And, it, and, that all, and then the food that we manage to grow also changes our nutrition. So, so, so with a, if you take a, if you take a, um, a grayscale chart where just, there's just one odd one out, one color, one uh, slightly darker or slightly lighter color um, odd, the Himba people will find it very easy to immediately identify that, whereas an English speaker finds it harder because in their cultural developing bath, Distinguishing between grayscale, between light and dark, is much more important. And, much, and uh, so they have developed the neural pathways. Their biology has responded to their culture. And so they've developed the neural pathways to make that much easier than um, for someone who speaks English. But there are other ways. If you, if you look at, if you look at um, things like farming, that's another, um, that's another cultural invention, which of course affects our environment massively, which then affects our biology. But this, this um, affects our belief, our mindset. So where, where collective farming has taken place, so crops such as rice um, are farmed, where that crop is farmed, which uses a lot more collective, um, collective agriculture because you need shared infrastructure like irrigation channels and so on, People have evolved um, in their cultural developing bath a more sort of holistic mindset to those who farm in the West with more individualistic farming practice. So, when, so that, that actually massively changes all sorts of behaviours in, um, in the uh, people who, in, in rice farmers compared to um, Westerners who are farming, who are farming uh, differently. So, for example, if you if you um, if you show um, two groups the um, uh, a train, um, a tracks, train tracks, and a bus, okay. So you show you show them a picture of a, a train, a bus, and um, railway tracks. 
the Westerners are more likely to pick out and say, you've got to pick out two things. You've got to group two things out of these three. The Westerners are more likely to pick the train and the bus because they're both um, vehicles. They're both um, transport. Whereas the uh, rice farmers who have a more holistic mindset will pick out the train and the tracks because they can't see them, because it makes more sense for them to to have one relying on the other, if you see what I mean. You can even trace things like um, the patriarchal society that we live in today to the type of farming that our ancestors did. So it's likely for almost all of our evolution, almost all of humanity's time on Earth, we, we had a much more egalitarian societies. It's likely we evolved it to be egalitarian. Because um, if you look at um, hunter-gatherer societies, the, the sexual inequality is much, much less. And um, in many of these societies, both men and women have um, equal say, for example, in where they live. And um, they might not do exactly the same roles, but one is not prioritized over the other. So in terms of power, they have about the same amount of power. But then when farming, when agriculture came in, and um, our societies changed. So agriculture, as we've, as I've explained, was was completely a cultural invention. But it changed the way we um, it changed the way we lived and the values that we placed on people. So societies that farm using plows or oxen generally ended up more patriarchal than those that farmed using digging sticks, which women could easily handle and combine with childcare. So, so that meant that. Um, that uh, the behaviours, the way that people saw women and the way people saw men changed and the power imbalance in that society was changed and this was passed down. So even after a society has urbanised, those whose societies used to farm by ploughing tend to be more patriarchal than those who didn't because these norms powerfully shape how we see the world. And we, we, but we also, we lose skills and gain others. I mean, the uh, today, I mean, I'm living in a city of New York, and I can do practically nothing for myself. I mean, I indeed, you know, I'm rely rely on a switch to turn on the light. I mean, I, it, it, I'm entirely dependent upon my uh, cultural environment and, and tools. Exactly. And I, I really don't think that this has been um, appreciated before in the same way that, that, that we really are. We, we really are a product of this evolutionary triad. You know, our culture and our cultural evolution, that is, that is just as much a part of us as the fact that we have two legs and two arms. The fact that we are cultural, we use tools, is just, a mu is just as integral to what it means to be human. And changing that Changing our biology is our culture, but also our environment, and each changes the other. So our culture changes our environment, things like farming, things like hunting, things like building. You know, we now live in completely artificial environments. You know, if you think about a city, this is, a, this is an environment that we have completely invented. It doesn't exist naturally. We have, we have radically transformed our planet. We now dominate it so that we we are pushing ourselves into 
we're pushing the planet into a new a new geological age, the age of humans, the Anthropocene. So we've we we have our planet we have evolved our planet and and that evolution has changed us changed our biology changed our culture and each of these then interact back on on the other but what's happening also with the immense growth in population let's say over the last 100 years the evolutionary uh process is speeding up i mean it's it's uh I mean, we've doubled or tripled the, the world population in the last hundred years, and that means a much bigger biomass of connected people, and 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 in constantly expanding collective human brain. But it's collective, but it's moving much more rapidly. I mean, you know, I mean, changes that took, you know thousands of years uh, are now happening in in a, a matter of, of decades yes and and to a certain extent this has always been true for humans and that's the point that we we are incredibly dependent on each other we're incredibly dependent and that's why we have evolved to become more and more and more social because um, that's been selected for by our culture. Our culture relies on having this pool of people that is closely knit and you can rely on to offload your energy costs, your cultural needs, your cultural costs, and your environmental needs. But what's happened now is that we have we have culturally, we have evolved, our technologies have evolved and our societies have evolved to the extent that we are so successful that we're already a population of more than seven and a half billion people living in this hyper-connected communities. And our technologies have evolved to the extent that, as you say, we, very, we do very little by ourselves. I mean, it's true that we could already not survive as individuals, even far back in our evolution. Right now, we definitely couldn't. But then, but to do that, I mean, we talked to your third uh, section, uh, word and language, and how do we find a story, a common story, it, that this enormous new beast made up of so many different parts will agree upon? Because without a com- without a common belief how do you how do how do you organize this the super organism organism into a coherent uh body politic yes so we've throughout our history we can show that the um that culture accelerates the the um it accelerates in complexity it's dependent on the size of our group because how much culture is is how many um, different options are held so if you're whatever you're doing if you're if you're refining um, a bow and arrow if there are all if there are five different um, methods to learn from that bow and arrow will become uh, more sophisticated slower than if there are 20 different options for you to choose from um, so so the number of people in your group, the population size, 
And the other thing that's incredibly important is the connectivity. So how many people are you sharing ideas with? That's why cities and coffee bars and universities are these great hubs of innovation, because there's a large number of people pulled together, actually talking to each other. And the faster that goes, you re- um, the bigger it grows, you, you reach a sort of tipping point. And I think that's what's happening at the moment. So, so then you get this acceleration in cultural and technological complexity where, where you get this massive speeding up. And we can see that if you look from, um, we can see that ecologically um, in terms of human activities on the planet. If you look from the end of the Second World War onwards, we have what's called the great acceleration in human activity, where everything from human population to number of cars to um, water use to planetary energy production, all these things rapidly accelerate. They've been sort of fairly constant. And then suddenly it just takes off after the 1950s. Um, so, so that's what's happening there. But I think something greater is happening. Something bigger is happening now uh, with our globalization, with our planetary changes. And we are becoming something different. Humans, I would say, humans are evolving into a super organism. And this is something I explore in the book. And I call, I call our super organism Homo omnis, um, sort of all, all human, all man. Um, and and this, this homo omnis, which I, which I um, abbreviate to homni to try and make him sound a bit cuter, I suppose. But <laughs> I mean, I, I would say we're a sort of toddler at the moment. This superorganism is blundering around. It's, it's, it doesn't have much form. It's kind of um, moving around and, and, and we don't know which, which, which direction it's going. At the moment, it's this massive, all-consuming beast blundering and... Um, and uh, increasing the temperature of the atmosphere and um, pulling the tops off mountains and doing all those sorts of things. And if you think as individuals, you know, we're not doing much either way to make the world, um, you know, to to increase the temperature of the atmosphere or or to um, or, or to uh, cause an extinction in insects or or something like that. We're not doing we're not doing it as individuals, but as humanity, as our as our superorganism, we really are. We're really quite powerful. And so this is, this is an opportunity. And it's also, I guess it's time for, uh, for caution. It's time to sort of think, uh, what, what can we do? You know, it, because our, our power um, of persuasion over this enormous beast is quite small. You know, if I decide to uh, recycle more or um, turn, I decide to become a vegan or stop um, flying in, in airplanes or something, that's going to make pretty much no difference whatsoever to biodiversity loss or to climate change or any of these things. So as individuals, we can't do anything, but we can as individuals through the societies, through the structures and institutions that we have evolved within our societies, we can have a little um, agency that way in, in swaying the, the general direction of this big blundering beast. And, and that's, that's, I think, um, the way to go. But, but there, are, there are reasons to be incredibly worried. We have um, enormous inequality in our societies at the moment, you know, globally especially. Um, and Homni, this, this global big beast, this superorganism, it's, it's a product of our interconnectivity. It's a product of our bigger society, of this idea that we are cooperating not just as family, um, 
as as other animals cooperate, not with our strangers in our group, as we have evolved only as humans to be able to do, not even as um, a bigger tribe, but as this huge, huge society where we align our interests, where we all have to say, um, we don't want to live in a world with a lot of air pollution, or we want to live in a world where there are still tigers or elephants or so on. We have to align our values. And when you when you consider that we all came from a different cultural developing bath where where we invent our values, there is no human value. Whatever people say that um, you know that that um, there are unassailable um, human rights or human beliefs or or um, what is good or bad or there is none of that. You know everything from you know there should be just one man married to one woman or you know, um, homosexuality is, is wrong or that this is the right way of behaving or this is, the, you know, stealing is wrong or, um, or, um, or, you know, but people think there is a natural way to be human and the right way. And there, there isn't, there isn't. But so if we are going to, if we are going to survive as a, um, as a bigger, even bigger society, we are going to have to do something about um, the inequality. And that does involve, that involves a level of inclusion that we don't seem to have, we don't seem to have managed in our small towns and cities, let alone a global society. So, so truly including people and truly trying to align values that we can, that, that we can sign up to as humans, realizing our, uh, our common humanity, realizing that we are we are actually all the same creature, but but that we have these inventions that have been so drummed into us over our childhoods and over you know even before we are born we're born into this cultural developing bath that that, that forms everything about us, but we are part we are part of a much bigger um, superorganism now, and 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 that should. That should propel us into a different way of, of acting and behaving. But, then, but to do that, I mean, we talk to your third uh, section, uh, word and language, and how do we find a story, a common story, it, that this enormous new beast made up of so many different parts will agree upon? Because without a com- without a common uh, belief, how do you how do you, how do you uh, organize the the super organism organism into a coherent uh, body politic? Well, yes, and you you mentioned story, and story is of course really important. So we evolved storytelling. Our and, and um, we, we invented that culturally, uh, and that actually drove our biology. So our brains are, are exquisitely, exquisitely um, uh, built to recognise and run on storytelling. We 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 seek narrative, and, and we love narrative everywhere. And that's how we understand our world. That's how we we create the world in our minds. Um, and story is what has. Um, allowed us to to transmit these common ideas of um of how of identity and how to believe and how to behave and and um 
and how to get on with each other through through our language. And and beyond that, I also talk about beauty. That's another big part of my book, which is which is this idea that that also humans are uh, have 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 evolved this other way. This instead of instead of um, selecting things purely for their objective value, the idea that they, that something can feed you or um, keep you warm or um, or help you get a better um, life partner or, or look after your infants better or security or, or these these very objective important valuable things that. Um, that all life forms have evolved to uh, value. We also have this subjective value. We value things in spite of their uselessness, or perhaps even because of their uselessness. So everything we make, and um, whether it's a knife or um, um, even a pen, is designed, and it's designed to be beautiful. It's designed for us. It will be decorated, and that won't help a knife cut better at all. But it will make it more valuable in a different way, and. We jointly agree through story to accept the value of something, to appreciate it, to recognize that something has got value beyond beyond its um, objective value. And that's really important. Well, uh, well, yes. I mean, that's the whole idea of money. It's the whole idea of money. I mean, we think money is... We think money is the true, the good, and the beautiful, but it's actually a piece of paper that is utterly valueless. And becoming and becoming less and less valuable if you live in Brexit Britain like I do, believe me. So um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Exactly. I mean, we're now yes, and we're going to go. Yeah, we're going to go to a, a credit card or a number on a screen. I mean, wealth used to be used to be able to see wealth in terms of gold or jewels or captive women but even in terms of gold and jewels okay that's that's ridiculous isn't it you can't eat gold it won't keep you warm it's no that's useless. right yes and yet I we know. decided that that was something that was valuable because it's pretty and it's shiny but then when you move to money like a paper bill or a note i mean it, that that's not even pretty it's worth it's 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 worthless in terms of everything but we have there but we have nevertheless decided to assign a value to it and we do this with everything, but the the important thing with money is that it's 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 allowed us to mitigate our risks. It's allowed us to money is a form of energy. It is. It's a form of energy. So 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 if you take two tribes, for example, that need to that that need to eat, both needs to eat, and one is one is better at um, uh, hunting wild boar, and the other one is better at uh, digging up. Um, potatoes or another tribe that, that makes knives for hunting or something um, you know they, they all need to eat all these people need to eat three times a day or two times a day perhaps if they're a bit desperate but um, but they haven't but they they can't all do that on on what they have specialized on so money gives them an opportunity to trade so first of all trade started with barter where you could barter your your um, your knife for um, for some wild boar meat later, say, but that requires trust, and um, trust is takes up energy, you know, because it's risky, and anything that's risky is energetic because um, you risk you risk um, investing in something that you don't get payback for. So. And it, and it works in very small societies, but as things get more complicated and bigger, it just doesn't work. 
So that's where valuables come in. That's where this this idea of beauty is so important because what you're doing is you can you can mitigate that because you can you can uh, reduce your risk and so reduce the energy outlay um, by offering something which you can't eat, which is useless, which you can't use as a tool, but is nevertheless agreed by society to be valuable, whether that's um, beautiful um, shell beads or whether it's um, twenty dollars, and so. This, you know, money, like everything else, has evolved over over time to various complexity. Where we now, where we now use um, credit cards or um, um, Apple Pay or whatever, it's evolved over time. And and what it does is it says that we, as a society, have decided to take a punt. We've decided to um, trust a big institution where there is nobody that we've looked at in the eye and nobody that we can come back with as an individual and um, attack if we don't get what we want. We've decided to put our trust in this big institution. And so far, it's worked. You know, if a, um, you know when the bank goes under, quite what normally happens is the government therefore backs that won't allow the banks to pay. Whether or not this is going to continue into the future, I don't know, because trust in institutions is already deteriorating. Trust in government is on the edge of deteriorating. So, you know, we could be in for a big shock. Well, if you, yes, I mean, that's what happens to, to uh, you know, Germany in the 20s. You lose trust in, in, in the currency. And once, yeah. Once, because the currency is, once that's gone, it, the it, currency it, in itself is worthless. You can't eat a twenty a twenty dollar right. bill. The whole thing is predicated on trust. The whole thing is built on this uh, magical yeah. fantasy that we have all bought into. We all we all trust that story, and so um, that. As, as we become more complex, this is this is what I, I could talk about this for, <laughs> for days and and probably bore everybody. So, <laughs> no, I, I accept I, I accept the I think it's unarguable your notion of the collective uh, what you call super organism this great beast that is emerging at accelerating speed. Because as the population of the world goes up and we add more extensions of the collective human brain, I mean, the speed of, of, of cultural evolution becomes uh, apparent. And they're all, and so, so we, we are literally in a position where we can either destroy or save the world, Right. Well, indeed, and we've already we've already massively changed the world. So, you know, we we everything we do is artificial in a way. You know, since we since we evolved, we've been um, changing landscapes from forests to um, hunting savannas, from um, hunting savannas to farmland, from farmland to cities. You know, mining, extracting, rerouting rivers. We've completely transformed our planet. So, so our natural yeah. ecosystem is changed. We have changed our ecosystem completely, um, unlike any other unlike any other creature. And um, with that, we've also changed ourselves. So, from being um, individuals in a small society to this big um, um, human superorganism, which which acts in a very different way. But at the same time, this human superorganism relies on the ecosystem relies on the uh, 
for for everything, you know. And we are we're now living in a in a resource limited society um, where we're running out of all sorts of things that we require to keep our civilizations functioning. Um, we rely entirely on this artificial ecosystem that we've created for everything, for literally everything. Um, and the planet without this artificial infrastructure couldn't host more than I don't know, yeah, a few, yeah. you know, several thousand humans. It certainly couldn't host, um, you know, nine billion, which is what we're heading for. So, so we somehow have to find a way for a population of nine billion to live in a resource-limited planet at the same time as experiencing um, a very hostile climate where we have these heat waves, these um, um, extreme weather shocks where, where um, you know, uh, our agriculture is suffering, all those sorts of things. You know, our food is um, unreliable, the, the, the weather is unreliable, all sorts of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary time and it's, um, it's, it's really... It's really quite. Um, I, I wonder how it's going to go, and I, you know, I have a few ideas, but um, but we can. We are the ones that invent, invented this world. We're the ones that made all of this, and we are the only ones that can bring us out of it. You know, there's nobody, there's no other creature that can save us. We did all this, so. <laughs> that that that's the that's a wonderful end. That's the that that's the, I believe the last sentence in in your book that it, it's it's us. That's all we have, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're the only, we're the only people there. It's a wonderful book, Gaia, and thank you very much, Gaia Vince, for speaking with us today about your new and marvelous book, Transcendence. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.